It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Waking up early isn't always easy, but Jody Husentrude always brought a sunny smile to her viewers on her morning show, Daybreak. At only 27 years old, Jody was a news anchor at KIMT News Channel 3 in Mason City, Iowa. Jody's vibrant personality and optimism translated to viewers, making her a beloved figure at the local station. Today, Jody's face is no longer seen on a television screen, but instead on a Mason City billboard. Beside her smiling picture are the words, Don't sit in silence. The time to talk is now. On Tuesday, June 27, 1995, Jody was expected to anchor Daybreak as always, but she never made it on air. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Jody was running late that fateful morning. When she didn't arrive at the station at the usual 3.30 a.m., co-workers called her apartment to check in on her. Jody answered the phone and explained that she accidentally overslept and would be in shortly. But Jody would never step foot in the office that day. Just after 7 that morning, the staff called the police, requesting a welfare check. When law enforcement arrived at her apartment complex, they discovered an ominous scene. Jody's red Mazda Miata sat in the parking lot. Her personal belongings, including red high heels and her hairdryer, were scattered beside the vehicle. Jody's bent car key was also found on the ground, as well as drag marks, which indicated a struggle. Later that morning, Jody's colleagues announced her disappearance on air. No trace of Jody was ever found. And in May 2001, she was declared legally dead. No suspect has been named in Jody's case. Despite the puzzling mystery, one organization remains dedicated to finding answers. Scott Fuller is a podcaster and team member at findjody.com. He joins me now to discuss Jody's disappearance and where her case stands today. Jody was a television news anchor at KIMT in Mason City, Iowa, and she did the daybreak show on uh, the morning show. And so she was to be at work on that Tuesday morning at about 3, 3.30, typically was her call time. And by 4 o'clock or about 10 to 4, she had not arrived at work, which was Pretty unusual for her. Jody had been late before, but not habitually. And, and it was getting to the point where her producer, a woman named Amy Coons, was concerned and, and honestly more annoyed that she was having to do all this work that, that Jody would normally do because 6 a.m. is going to come and they have to get on the air at, at some point. And so um, uh, Amy called Jody at her apartment and Jody answered. She was kind of lethargic, sounded like she had been woken up, definitely, according to Amy. And Jody said, what time is it? 
Uh, Amy said 350 and Jody said, I'll be right there. And um, that's the last time that anyone that we know of spoke to Jody Husentrude. She was abducted from the appearance of a scene. She was abducted from the parking lot of her apartment complex, which is about a five-minute drive from her television station in Mason City. Some of her items were found strewn around the car. There was very little, if any, physical evidence of her being abducted aside from her items uh, being in the parking lot, which is obviously abnormal. And some evidence on her car in terms of the driver's side mirror being bent backwards in an unusual way. Her key, her car key to her uh, Mazda Miata was bent slightly, indicating that maybe Jody had the key in the lock as she was hit from behind or otherwise forcibly uh, encountered. And that, that was it. And Jody has never been seen since. Outside of the parking lot, there is no evidence of what happened to Jody from that day in 1995 to this day. So tell us about the ensuing search, the investigation, the public response. What did that look like? News of Jody going missing went around Mason City pretty quickly on that morning. Um, by noon, it was on her own television station that she had not reported to work on that day. And uh, it was on the radio. So by 4 p.m., just about everybody in Mason City knew that Jody had not shown up for work on that day. Nobody knew what happened. Details about what was later found in the parking lot had not been made public yet. So there were initial theories that she ran away. Maybe it's on her own. Um, obviously, that doesn't appear to be the case because of her items in the parking lot. But initially, it was a kind of an odd thing. Like, what happened to Jody? What, is, is she going to come back? But the people who were familiar with the scene and some of the people who were familiar with Jody knew that this was something else. So the Mason City Police uh, arrived initially at about 7 15, I think the call went out at 7.13 in the morning, and they arrived within a couple of minutes, and within a half hour, just about half the department, including some high-ranking MCPD officials, including the chief at the time, Chief Jack Schlieper, were there and working the scene. They had the scene taped off. So pretty quickly got around Mason City that this was not, this is not normal. This is not Jody um on a whim, you know, going somewhere or voluntarily disappearing. This was pretty clearly a forcible abduction. And so the search from law enforcement uh, commenced by processing the scene uh, in the parking lot. There was some processing of the scene inside the apartment itself, the, the Jody's unit. And then there were dog searches on that day and the ensuing days going down to the river. Jody's apartment complex bumps up against the Winnebago River and in some of the open fields nearby. And then as the days and weeks and, and eventually months of searching for Jody uh, went on, the radius of that search just expanded pretty much from the key uh, apartment parking lot in Mason City, none of which yielded any information or evidence that we know of that had to do with her abduction. And given it was so long ago, it's considered a cold case technically. Um, she was declared legally dead by a judge in Iowa in May of 2001. What was that development like for the community and the family that had waited years for some type of development? And it seems like there, there's been very little to nothing. And that seems to be the most surprising part. Yeah. Um, the, her legally being declared dead was a, a formality and I think a helpful thing uh, for the family in terms of just the paperwork that's involved. Um, I think everybody... Um, fair to say, everybody that's familiar with the case believes that Jody is is not alive. She had run away. 
Um, she's not on a beach somewhere. Something happened to her on, her, uh, her on that morning that eventually resulted in her death at some point. So um, she died, I think, on June 27th or very close to it as a result of whatever happened to her. Um, Mason City, I think it would it'd be helpful for some context of, um, at the time, the Mason City Police Department had a trust issue with the community in terms of how MCPD was uh, was observed and just felt as a community presence in Mason City, to the point where uh, they had, for the first time when they brought in Chief Sleeper, he was the first Mason City police chief who was not an internal promotion. He was brought in from outside to kind of get rid of and do something about the the um, perceived good old boys network in the department at that time. Um, there were some things about the department, not overt corruption necessarily, but there were the town had lost trust in its department. And Chief Jack Sleeper is imposing some very controversial internally new administrative policies, and we're going to be doing things this way from now on. And just as he's getting the ball rolling on some of those fixes, the, the direction he wants to take MCPD, Jody goes missing. And the Mason City Police Department was not ready for a case of the scope and size of what eventuated to be uh, Jody's case. And uh, I, I think some early mistakes were made um, in the processing of the evidence from day one. And um, the, the administration since, there have been several other chiefs since then, they've pretty much had to deal with the hand that they were dealt in terms of the evidence and the leads that were initially investigated by that overwhelmed department in Jody's case. Can you share what some of that evidence processing or lack thereof, some of those leads, what that all looked like? Well, I think um, some of the basic, I, I, I think the best way to answer that question, Emily, is if this crime happened today, I think it would be solved because of the advancements in technology. You have security cameras, surveillance everywhere. You have cell phones. None of that was prominent if, if it existed at all in Mason City. So tracking Jody and putting people in different places in town or in the parking lot itself is impossible without eyewitnesses. and. Whatever happened to Jody that morning took it from the best we can determine about a minute or so of her struggling with somebody in the parking lot to actually happen. And later it was learned by police that people in the other buildings of the apartment complex did hear struggles and screaming and some unusual maybe behavior, but they didn't call 911 initially and were only interviewed by police hours later on that day, in, in some cases, weeks uh, after when the FBI came to, to follow up. So everything is working against MCPD. And at the same time, this is the, the dawn of the public awareness of DNA in criminal cases. So the processing of the crime scene wasn't done as you do it today. You weren't looking for the same kind of evidence that we're seeing all these cold cases of 40 and 50 and 60 year old cases being solved. Almost every one of those old cold cases is solved using some kind of DNA or a DNA link. And they weren't necessarily looking for DNA in the parking lot on that morning. The, the techs who process the scene and the officers who are processing the scene behind the tape that day weren't wearing gloves, for example. Some of the basic evidentiary police procedure uh, practices were not followed. And, and I can't say that they weren't necessarily best practices back then. But we look back on it now and say it, it's a shame of what was forever lost in her apartment or in the parking lot on that morning just because law enforcement wasn't 
operating at the same sort of evidence level that they are today. And in terms of leads that you mentioned, so it's my understanding that, for example, there was someone who lived up the street from that apartment and claimed that he saw a light-colored van in the lot as he drove to work, which was about that same time. That van has never been found. Mm. Were there other leads that were publicly declared or, or sought after? Was there any other things that the police requested help from the community regarding or any other tips specifically that either died or didn't lead to anything? So the van um, itself, that a man named Randy Linderman was driving to, uh, to work at Winnebago, which is south of Mason City in a different town. So he was picking up um, a co-worker and on his way to carpool to pick up this co-worker, he claims to have seen a white Ford Econoline van idling with its parking lights on facing Kentucky Avenue in the, in the parking lot of, of the key apartments. And um, that was run with immediately the same day or the day after by MCPD. There were other vehicle sightings reported to police that were not made as publicly available. Um, there's a house across the street. Um, I talked to a woman who rented the upstairs who did see a van in a different location than Randy said that he saw but did see a van, but the, uh, the owners of that home were uh, interviewed the following day by a, a, a retired now officer of MCPD. And the woman of that house said, I saw a truck. I saw a truck on that day. And the van was basically weighed heavier than the truck sighting and made public. And that was sort of an on the fly determination seemed to be because Randy Linderman has a better view of the van. This woman is seeing this supposed truck from across the parking lot, having just woken up at four o'clock in the morning. And so it wasn't a, let's put both these vehicles out there. Uh, it, they chose the van. And so the van has been the assumed vehicle uh, involved in Jody's abduction from that day on to this day. Um, the white van is one of the most uh, associated pieces of, of uh, the case. It may have been involved in Jody's abduction, but we don't know for sure that the white van was was there for any other reason. As far as we know, the white van sighting never went anywhere with uh, police. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Were there any indicators in Jody's personal life or, or just her life in general um, that this could have been pre-planned? Were there any suspects, persons of interest that were named or identified? Or was this thought of as totally random by the officers? You know, her car, a handyman at, the, at her apartment, you know, anything like that? Did she have anything like that? I don't want to say what the initial investigation was thinking but if you see that the parking lot, and I've been there dozens of times, and you know where her car was, and you know where she was egressing from her apartment building, it would be hard to think that this is random, you know, spur of the moment. This is not the wrong person walking down Kentucky Avenue when they see Jody and they go harm her. It was not that. Um, just because of the, the sheer short distance from the door to the Miata and she was, I think, attacked from behind anyway. So someone was lying in wait for, for Jody. I think that's a fair assessment. Who that was and what their relationship to her was is really complicated by the fact that she was a very well-known local 
television personality. So it could be somebody in her circle of friends. And I think Jody had many different circles of friends that she kind of almost intentionally kept separate from one another. She knew people in the business community. She had friends that she went to the bar with. She had friends that were friends of her friends. And she knew everybody, but Jody's friends didn't necessarily always know each other. So that's difficult. And then because she's on television and just being a female on television, I've never talked to a woman in television in my life who hasn't told me a story of, I got a letter, I got an email, I had a bad experience with a viewer. And um, it could be that. Um, it, because she's on TV every day, anybody in that media market from Mason City all the way up to Rochester, Minnesota, could be theoretically a, a suspect if it was a disgruntled viewer situation. So the fact that somebody was waiting for her, I think is is a, a very safe assumption, but who I think is still open to interpretation. And at that time, to your point about, you know, the digital world, cell phones and the like, there might have been less ability or less evidence of a potential stalker, let's say, or a super fan, you know, to to be able to be recorded. There could have been letters yeah. sent that she taught that she threw away that no one ever saw. So you mentioned the FBI, and for the FBI to join an investigation um, in this sense, it would be via request from the police department. Right. So when that happened, what was what did that look like? Was the public reassured in some way? Did the FBI start pursuing that public person figure situation and potential super fans and the like? Tell us about that. I don't know. I, I haven't, I'm not even on the case file. I can't definitively say the FBI's role versus the DCI, which is the state agency in Iowa or MCPD. I think initially the FBI was brought in for resources. I think that was the initial idea of these, this agency has resources that we in Mason City, Iowa just don't have. I think the FBI has always remained involved in Jody's case in different capacities. It's been looked over by dozens of different agents over the years. Same for the state investigative agency, the DCI. Um, I think at times, um, from the outside, it seems MCPD has had different ideas of the direction of the investigation than some of the state or federal agents on the case. Sometimes not. It's tough to say uh, from the outside. I'm not sure how reassured the public was. Um, this is a case where if you were around in Mason City, it's like a JFK situation where it's that moment you remember when you heard that she was missing. And um, it, it's still to this day, people remember I was at this diner when I heard it on the radio or when I saw it on television. And that's um, when, when I talked to people in the area who were around then, it's, it's a big deal. And I think to solve this case would go a long way for the community, obviously for Jody and her family. But the community of Mason City and the relationship that they've had with their police department, which I think has improved over the years, but it's still there. And Jody's case definitely didn't help that that public trust. And so it's one that I know MCPD would like to solve. Are they going to be able to with the evidence that they had that was collected by the administration and the, the investigation at the time remains to be seen. But um, it's, a, it, it's a complicated arrangement, kind of a, a complicated relationship that that town has with its police department. Jody is a part of that story. Can you share, prior to this happening, it sounds like she was a beloved figure to that point. It was a shock when she went missing. Can you share what the community is like and what it was like to live there um, and how, how Jody was received as one of their loved figures? 
Yeah, that's a great question because Mason City is 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 a decent size. It's in a, a rated media market. It's a part of that market, but it's also small enough where when you're looking into this case and you find that this person was this is hypothetical, but this person was Jody's friend and this person had a connection to somebody that lived in the key apartment complex because they were the best man in their wedding, let's say. In a different situation, you might latch onto that and say, this is really something. I'm onto something here. But it's still small enough where that could be coincidence. This person knows this person through this work relationship. That's an investigative lead that in other areas of the country I'd get more excited about. And you still look into them, but you can't rule out just coincidence either because it's a small enough town. So it's a, it's got a small town feel to it, uh, Mason City. I lived in um, a town north of that for 15 years, which is how I became involved in um, looking into Jody's case. It's a, it's a unique, I'm trying to think of the best way to characterize it. It's definitely a blue collar town, some industry there. There are family names there that go back generations. Um, it's, it's sort of a transient town being on the interstate as well. It, it's, it's got a little bit of a gritty feel to it, I think. It's a very Midwestern, but it, it has a little bit of an edge um, to it that some other places in the Midwest don't. Can we dive in now for a moment to, you know, you've spent so much time and effort on this case. You host a successful podcast. Um, what have you learned in these years? What have you what have you uncovered or, or what have you pursued that we don't know or that isn't readily public? No, everything, <laughs> everything, um, <laughs> a lot. What's strange about this case versus others that I've looked into is the more you look, the more you find. Um, and, and part of that is, is Jody. There is a lot that she, I think, intentionally kept private. For example, any other case of a, a woman her age First thing you look at is what are her relationships? And she's got this one, maybe two circle of friends, boyfriend. Is she dating anybody? I know that Jody had romantic relationships, but there are no, there's no boyfriend that, that uh, you can point to. There's no steady, stable relationship. I think she was interested in men, but she was more interested in advancing her, her career. So she would have these less official relationships, some of which don't, uncover themselves to us for 20 plus years later. All kinds of things uh, like that, that we've looked into from Jody's car to the birthday party to uh, people who have been named as sort of persons of interest in, in this case that have been publicly investigated by the police. And um, I, I think it's fair to say dozens, if not over a hundred of people that the public doesn't know about that we kind of um, look into his possibilities and go as far as we can with them. Um, of those, let's say 200 names, there have been five or six that I got real excited about and we took as far as we could and then eventually have to turn over our, our um, findings to the authorities. And there does come a point where, for a lot of reasons, we have to do this the right way and we turn whatever, what, what information that we do have over to them. We have found plenty that the police did not have. I can, I can say that uh, just all over the case of various aspects, some that may or may not be more important than others, but we're not going to be the ones to solve it. If it's ever going to be prosecuted or eventuated, um, it's got to be done the right way. You mentioned the birthday party. Now, it's my understanding that the night before she went missing, she had stopped by her friend's home to watch video 
of her 27th surprise birthday party. Is is that what you're referring to? And can you share a little bit more details? Yeah, um, a circle of friends of Jody's. One of the the people in that circle was a man named John Van Sice, who is someone that uh, used to live at her apartment complex. I believe that's how they initially met. And they became friendly just recreationally. They would go water skiing together. They would go to the bar together. And um, he was significantly older than she was, uh, 20 years her senior. But I, I think he uh, enjoyed knowing Jody and just being around Jody. Um, there's been speculation about uh, romantic interest one way or the other between them. And I think we've learned enough to know that that was uh, talked about. I think that was discussed between the two of them, or at least acknowledged at some point, but there's no evidence that that was ever requited. Um, but he threw a birthday party for Jody earlier in June, a couple of weekends before she went missing, that was uh, attended by uh, probably 50 people in that circle of, of friends. Hard to tell because it was in a bar, an open sort of mingling situation. But um, he he threw her that party, and uh, John Van Sice has said that he acquired a copy of that videotape and uh, wanted Jody to come over and and see it. And that did happen to be on that Monday night, the night before. This is what John Van Sice has said uh, publicly, that Jody went to his apartment and left at about 8.30 or so um, and then went home. And that was the last time that he saw Jody. John Van Sice then appears in the parking lot as the scene is being processed the next day with a couple other uh, men. And tells police, I saw Jody last night and I have this, the videotape of the birthday party and they ask him to go get it. They do and, and they meet at the police station. And so that's kind of John's genesis in the investigation uh, of the case. And, um, you know, he's, he's by far the most talked about publicly person of interest, fairly or not, in uh, Jody's disappearance. Uh, there, there are people that are convinced to this day that he had something to do with it. And uh, certainly possible. Uh, I, the, the Mason City Police Department have investigated him pretty thoroughly, well, obviously thoroughly, but as recently as 2017, they, they um, sought and received a search warrant for vehicles of his that were manufactured after 1995 that wouldn't have been involved in, in the crime itself. But um, I, th I think uh, for GPS vehicle data, so I think the, the thinking might be if, if John's around, let's see where he goes. I'm not sure. Um, the uh, current chief said that didn't pan out the way that they were kind of hoping that it might. But from outside the investigation, one thing we can say for sure is as recently as a couple of years ago, they're still looking at, at John Van Sice in connection with this case. And you mentioned, you know, there might be five or six others that you that had been distilled down from a larger pool. Can you share any information about their stories? You know, how how they had intersected with Jody, uh, where they encountered her, et cetera? Uh, I wouldn't want to do that uh, specifically. Um, I don't think that's right to do. Um, I, I think, frankly, um, the, the the people that have been talked about publicly, um, they have been there have been media reports on Tony Jackson, who is a serial rapist. You know, three years later, who lived in Mason City at the time, a man named Thomas Corscadden lived in uh, Austin, the town where I lived um, at the time, and he's been talked about. Obviously, John Van Sice has been talked about. All three of them did not do it. Um, or if, if any of them did. So I think publicly naming people like that is, is, um, is unfortunate. I mean, if John Van Sice is either responsible for Jody's disappearance in some way or involved, or he has been really, un, really, he, he would be a sympathetic figure if he had nothing to do with Jody's case. And uh, the police know more about 
what they've looked into when it comes to John Van Sice, obviously, than, than I do. But there are other names um, that are uh, just as interesting, but you always get down to they got to be in the parking lot. They got to be there on that morning. And how can you put them there? Or is there some other connection point that you can make somewhere else in Jody's life? One thing um, I, th- I think that I have learned that's hit me the most in the last years of looking into Jody's case, I think she was more scared um, in the months leading up to her disappearance than certainly I realized. And I don't think it's talked about enough. Um, it's, she took a self-defense class at one point. She called the Mason City Police Department in October of 94 uh, to report that she was being followed by a white truck that was scary enough for her to call the police. And they showed up and they took some information, but she didn't have a license plate or anything like that. But that's a that's nine months before her disappearance. And even recently, we found some more writings of Jody where she is mentioning self-defense classes again. And for a 27-year-old kind of happy-go-lucky by all descriptions woman, even in the public eye, I think she was, I think she was more scared than people realize. And I, I think she, um, I think she had experienced enough in Mason City, uh, whatever it might have been, that she felt personally threatened to actually go take a self-defense class and take that step. You don't just do that if you, if you don't feel that there's a need um, to protect yourself from something. So I think it's definitely possible that any of the people that have been named publicly in Jody's case, um, I, I think any of them can't necessarily be ruled out, in my opinion. But I think it's very possible that someone whose name we've never heard is, is the one that took Jody and had been following her for some time. I think there's an element of stalking in Jody's case. I don't know if it's for days or weeks or months, but somebody I think was stalking her to be waiting for her there that morning. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. When you learned that she had made that police report about the white truck, did that have a huge impact as it did on me just now to hear that? Given that there were reports of a white truck that morning, whether it's a truck or a van, you know, to that, to, to so many people, it looks, could look the same from, a, from the front angle or from the back, or they're not sure how to describe. I mean, that's sort of a big either coincidence or commonality. I think in cases like this, you look for escalation and you usually look closer to the, the events of, in this case, Jody's disappearance. But I wonder about that, that white truck. I wonder, I've wondered before how many people might have been stalking Jody, stalking Jody at different times. Um, she was very publicly available in terms of just her appearance about town. She's very approachable. One of the things we found years and years ago was that her name and phone number and apartment unit number were in the Mason City phone book in the public phone directory. So anybody that wanted to could have seen her home phone number and her address and the exact unit that she lived in, in the apartment complex, which is kind of absurd to think about today. I, I think uh, I, the, the truck being nine months before isn't sort of that to the day escalation that you might look for. But I, I've, I wonder, I think it's a good reminder in Jody's case that of how public she was and that it was pretty clear that she felt afraid. She was, I think, more in fear for one reason or another um, that she didn't share openly than than most cases, maybe. You know, it calls to mind just six years prior to that, 
which maybe seems like a, a long time, but really it's not. Rebecca Schaefer in Los Angeles was shot dead on her doorstep by a super fan who mm. obtained her information from the DMV for 200 bucks because that yeah. was legal at the time. And then here we are six years after that in Iowa, her informa- Jody's information was published, accessible to your point. And you pointed out earlier that the, the town is right next to an interstate. So that mm-hmm. means that upon abduction, at the rate of 80 miles, 60 miles an hour, she could have been transported far, far away by someone who perhaps came from far away to profess his love or his whatever it is. And the stalking component is a very prevalent crime um, and circumstance with public figures, men and women. And it's it, the unfortunate accessibility, especially back then, plays into it. There is a massive occurrence out there of people who feel connected to public figures yeah. and decide to act on it. Well, that's your job, right? The, the, her job, she wasn't a journalist. She wasn't a reporter. She was that morning show, today show kind of a host in the morning. So a good part of her doing her job right is to have that through the screen connection with people. I have my choices of how I'm going to start my day, what I'm going to turn on on the television. And there's something about Jody that just makes me feel nice. And that's enough. But that's that's something that Jody did have. But that can be misinterpreted by the wrong kind of mind to I do know this person. And maybe hypothetically, this person had approached Jody at remotes or in public at some point. And it's an interaction that he's going to hold very, very high esteem. But it's just an, another viewer in Jody's mind, maybe, where she meets 100 people in that setting a day. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard. Um, the, the other factor of in terms of the interstate and everything else that morning, uh, we think that Jody's abduction occurred about 415 in the parking lot, and the police weren't called until 715. So this is a three-hour head start that this person is going to have, which obviously doesn't help in the initial investigation to in, in finding her alive at that point. And what I found curious is that the, the police were called, they, they came there on a welfare check from Amy, from her producer who had called from the station. I'm surprised that there wasn't any neighbors who encountered the open door, her heels on the sidewalk and her blow dryer, the clear signs of struggle and or just, you know, a, a car with all of this stuff strewn about and no driver prior to 7.15. That seems late enough to me that I would think a neighbor would have walked by on their way to their car or commute in this parking lot. Was there ever any explanation or any, any type of looking into that? That's, that's a good point. Um, you, I think it would help to see the parking lot. I have sat in that parking lot on a June 27th at four o'clock in the morning just to get a feel for it. Her section of the parking lot was a little bit hidden. In other words, the other two buildings were larger and if your car is parked in a certain way, you and with the items being behind her car and in the median, it is theoretically possible that you could not see them in the dark or whatever it might be. It's really unfortunate that for whatever reason, all these people that at least heard something didn't call the police at that time. Because um, even before technology and, and tracking somebody's cell phone or something like that, if the cops are at least aware that this has just happened prior to three hours ago, that might've helped. Um, maybe you pull over the right person or something like that. But yeah, I, I, the best explanation I have for that is apartment living is sort of insular, I think. So, 
you kind of mind your own business. And if you hear something, you don't necessarily call police. Um, this complex is also next to a park, which had maybe at times rowdy parties, an RV park, a campground. And so if you hear noises, maybe you don't call police. I'm not sure. It's, it's really unfortunate that nobody called the police. But uh, yeah, nobody from the apartment complex called police. This is a welfare check that was called in. Best we can tell, 415 to 715, her items are all there. The car is there. Everything's there. There's no blood. Uh, so whatever, what happened to Jody, uh, she has to be incapacitated in a way that doesn't cause any blood um, or any other, you know, signs of a crime. But it would have been a suspicious looking scene, I think, for someone to see. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, there are plenty of people, even, even at 430 in the morning, out and about in that parking lot from 4.15 to 7.15, but nobody thought to call the police. And at first blush, I agree with you wholeheartedly, which is if she's taking a self-defense class in 1995, that she is absolutely afraid of something or has a reason to. Let's say it that way. Yeah. She has a specific reason to. And my question to you is, was there any, ever any identification of a confidant of hers? You mentioned she was friends with lots of people and different molecules of, of groups, but did she have a girlfriend maybe that knew everything about her. You know, I, I, can name, I can name a bunch of people that know everything about what's going on that would be able to articulate, this is why M was doing something or whatever. Is there anyone that could shed light on why she did that or that she would maybe Amy at the network of, hey, I'm getting these letters from this fan or whatever. It, it seems hard to believe that she was that private that she would share it with no one. Was there anyone else that corroborated things that Jody was dealing with? She confided here and there, I've taken a self-defense course, but she never said, I am scared of Joe Smith. He's really freaking me out. I got to do something about this. Part of the problem, too, is when we go back and talk to these people, you know, it's like asking, what was your personal conversation with somebody 25 years ago? And can you remember that and recall that for us? And memory is just an issue. But I think Jody, I don't know that she had that person. She had a lot of girlfriends. She had Kelly Torgerson, who's a woman in in um, in Louisiana, who she called actually on that Monday night before she disappeared from her apartment. She had Robin Wolfram, who she worked with at the TV station. She had lots of friends in Mason City, but not that bestie, you know, not that that friend where is is going to be able to do this this dump of information um, to police. Not that we know about. So I. I think she was a, a pretty private person. I, th I have thought of Jody as being on, like she's out in public and she's constantly on, but there is no um, best friend that we found where she's confiding everything into. And yet there are so many different women and other friends in these circles that we have to kind of parse some of that together. So it's, it's she's a really victimology wise. I think she's a very difficult person to to nail down. I've never really felt like I know Jody Hoosentrude. I've never gotten a feel for. I knew what she liked to do and some of her passions and some of her dreams, but uh, she she was not confiding much of that. Um, she kept a diary, but th that's publicly known. There, there, we haven't been able to find a a whole lot in that way. And I assume this is sort of part of the asked and answered, but I just have to ask, was her defense, self-defense instructor interviewed? Because the other thing is, you know, I, I hear you about the duration of memories, which fade, but oftentimes they can crystallize in a moment if it's an exceptional moment um, or if it's attached to a traumatic moment. Meaning if you are 
teaching a course to a public figure, you're probably going to remember that and you're going to remember her and everything about it. And also, if someone goes missing right after you interacted with a person and they were yeah. a public figure, they'll probably remember it. So I cite those two things to, to say, did the defense instructor at all say like, yes, I was her instructor and she came to me and said, I'm taking this class because X, Y, Z. Nope, just very vague. Um, she said that uh, the, the one class that this particular woman taught, I think it was a married couple actually that owned a, a gym, said that Jody was late. She recalled that and that she missed a good chunk of the, the class itself. And Jody took notes and she brought those notes back to Robin, who she worked with, and shared some of those tips that she had learned. But nothing of, yeah, I'm not sure somebody in that, in the position of the self-defense instructor is going to ask, why do you need this? But Jody was not forthcoming on why she was there either. We went so far as I tracked down her hairdresser because I'm thinking sometimes people can find things with their their stylist, especially women. Maybe I uh, nothing. He had no um, recollection of anything specific. He said kind of the same thing that she was always very friendly, but kind of very reserved to nothing. No personal chit chat along those lines. Wow. So what else don't we know, Scott? Uh, what other can you share with maybe what you are focusing on now with her or since the development of your website and the podcast, have there been tips? Um, has there been information? You said the more we look into it, the more we find, mm -hmm. um, you know, now at, at our stage of our conversation, what next? Oh, well, we, we get uh, around an anniversary, we'll get several tips a day. Uh, we have a billboard that's up in Mason City that has a tip URL on it as well. In the last year, tips have slowed to maybe one a, a week. And of the tips that we get, some we just can't do anything with. Um, some are along the lines of, I had a dream or I'm a psychic. There's always those. Some are, I heard this, but there aren't any names or dates or specifics that we can really do anything with. But there are good tips that still come in pretty regularly, a couple of months that we will be able to track down as far as we can. And, um, more often than not, if we think there there could be something there, you, you certainly don't want to pass on the one tip that's going to lead to to the answer. So we um, encourage people to uh, to reach out to the DCI or the MCPD and pass the information on to them. I, I I will say that because the the MCPD has turned over so many times over the years, we do encourage people to even if you've called the police before, do it again. If you have some information where you see Jody's case come up in media coverage and you've always thought, you know, I, this has always bothered me. And I, I called the police and they didn't seem to listen to me. Do it again or reach out to the DCI or vice versa. You never know what that current investigator that's on the case is going to do with it. And you, you just don't know what they have that we don't have that it probably doesn't all make sense to you, but it might fit in to something for them. So all we can do at this point is encourage people to, if you have a suspicion, reach out to us, reach out to law enforcement. Just make sure that you tell somebody. Don't worry about bothering us. Just reach out to the police or to somebody. Make sure that somebody knows what you think you know about Jody's case. We'll be right back with more of this story. I keep thinking about how, you know, again, that interstate and what big cities are in either direction of it and thinking about how, you know, how, how vital and, and potentially and crucial her, her photo would have been for, you know, for the person that maybe ran into, I might've seen something, I mean, later on, you know, and didn't yeah. know what they were seeing. And I, I, it seems to me that 
the hope we are looking for is either that concrete tip or coming across remains and having mm-hmm. them positively identified as her, which would be obviously so sad and tragic, but would bring a semblance of closure. I think it's pretty, I think the fact that her remains have not been found uh, might be telling. I mean, this is going on 28 years of hunting seasons and outdoor recreation and farming. Um, and nobody has come across Jody's remains. So I'm not sure what that tells us, but I do think it, um, it tells us something. Um, her remains would be the, the, the big find for the case itself. And I know it would bring some, I'm not sure if closure is the right word, but it would bring some kind of, um, end to a chapter for her family, um, which would be great. In terms of this case being a first degree murder, big trial, I don't know how likely that is anymore for a variety of reasons, but if you got the right information from the right person and you could corroborate it, maybe I could see a plea. I could see a a case being closed. Um, But what I guess what Jody's friends and family deserved after this tragic event happened of this person being swiftly apprehended and tried and proven guilty, that's getting difficult just because of the the passage of, of time and the lack of known physical evidence that juries like in this day and age. But of course, we're hopeful. We wouldn't do it if we, if we uh, didn't think that you never know. There have been crazy, uh, crazy solves to some cases that I personally thought would never be solved uh, recently. So you got to keep, keep at it. And is Jody's family, um, have they remained an integral part of the investigation as well? And are they prevalent in the search with you? Yeah, um, jo- one of Jody's sisters, Joanne, has has from the beginning been kind of the the public family face, um, and she she's had a hard time, obviously, with it over the years. And the, the one personal connection that I have to this case, I don't think is is to Jody. As I said, I never felt like I I I knew her, even being being in the media. Uh, my driving motivation is. A, this shouldn't happen, and you shouldn't be allowed to get away with this just on a societal level. Um, someone should be looking for you constantly. But also, on the family side, Joanne. Um, Joanne, especially, and her daughter, Jody's uh, niece, are, are very, I think it's right, still just below the surface uh, for them. And things come up, reports and people claiming things about this case to this day that bother them, that really ruin their day. And that's... They've gone on, you know, sort of moved on with their life, but nobody deserves that. And I know there are a ton of, of victims, talked to many in, in my career, and they all handle it differently. And, and they're kind of an insular victims family group. They, they're not going to go advocate necessarily for, for Jody and hold the rallies and put up the billboards. But, you know, we, the, we're in antsy and kind of a precocious group of journalists and former law enforcement. So we do that for them on their behalf and on the behalf of, of everybody, because a world where, I mean, Jody was in some ways different than almost everybody and that she was, had this effervescence and she, life seemed easy, but she was also just someone going to work on that morning. We all go to work every morning, you know, that way. And for that to be able to happen to anybody in the parking lot, right outside your your house when it's probably the last thing that you're thinking about is um, that that just that simple 
injustice of this case bothers me. The reason that I encountered this case is because I uh, had the pleasure of speaking to one of the Iowa local radio stations. It was WHO, which is out of Des Moines, but the the host there brought up this case. And my point is, and his point is, is that the community doesn't want the country to forget about it. And that it still, it, it left a big imprint on the community, on the entire state of Iowa, clearly. And the community is still waiting for answers. It's not just Jody's family and their emissaries like yourself that are searching for answers and waiting for them. You know, many, many people in Iowa um, and beyond feel close to this case and and want it solved and hope that it gets solved and is committed to keeping her name and her photo in the public eye. So to that end, Scott, other than listeners spreading the word, reading all about this and, and you know, continuing to make sure that they, if someone has a tip, they they call it in. But what else would you like to share with listeners before we close today? I think it's important. Obviously, if this case is solved, we don't know how it's going to happen. So I just have to look at other cases I've been involved in where relationships change and other maybe extended family members get involved. I think it's possible that even if you're in Connecticut or Oregon or wherever you are in the country, if you have a family connection to Mason City, Iowa, especially, I would ask that that person, that uncle or aunt or whoever it might be, are you familiar with Jody's case and see what they say? I wouldn't be surprised if there are items still missing from that parking lot. Uh, Jody's wallet was never, or her uh, her handbag at that time was never found. We know she, she had a diary, a calendar that was never found. We know there are things that uh, are out there that might be in somebody's possession that may still exist in some attic or some basement. So that would be worth um, being aware of. And that's why we appreciate the coverage of your show and all the coverage that we're able to get because... If you encounter something like this and you're kind of familiar with the case, maybe you connect the dots where otherwise it's just a really old looking, you know, uh, whatever it might be, handbag or whatever it is. Um, so I, I guess just to uh, to be aware of any connections that you have in your life to 1995 in Mason City, Iowa, or for that matter, southern Minnesota and the surrounding area. And um, just to, just to be aware of Jody's case, I think she deserves to be remembered, but I also think with uh, coverage of her case, it might lead to something, uh, especially at this late in the game. What, what's it going to hurt um, to to make sure that everybody's aware of it? I've I've always said of a lot of my cases, but this is one too, where if everybody in the country knew about this case, it'd probably be be solved because this person has told somebody, or this person has now an ex wife who is is not saying anything, or and that person's told somebody. Um, homicide detectives will tell you that if DNA isn't going to solve a case or if there is no fingerprint or other physical evidence, it's people talking when it gets cold. It's people coming forward with stories or um, suspicions, even based on whatever it might be. Just make sure that somebody knows about about that. And you never know what what the first domino might look like in bringing in bringing an answer to this case. That's right. We just covered, we had Jana Monroe on, FBI agent, who, uh, upon receiving a cold case that she'd actually been there on the first days, but um, years later, upon putting on a billboard the uh, potential perp's handwriting, within mm -hmm. 24 hours, they had multiple, they had the identification from multiple sources of the same individual. And the whole, that whole point, which is to yours, 
is that it's the awareness. The second you have the awareness, someone has the answer, someone knows something, and it's just getting that question in front of them. For long yeah, long I know time. of a case in Florida that was pretty much solved that way with handwriting on a billboard. Not sure if yeah, it was the, the same exactly, one. Yeah, Tampa. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, that's a, a good example, too, in that case. I've always thought of creative, out-of-the-box law enforcement thinking, too. What do we have? And you do have to make a, a, a decision at some point. How much of the case file do we open up to the public? Uh, but with Jody, it's been so long, and so much of it's been leaked. And that's a whole other story about her diary being mailed to the newspaper. And uh, the integrity of the case file is not as most people would have it over the years. So a lot of it's out there anyway. And I guess my greatest fear is we already know everything that, that law enforcement knows. But I have to hope that they're still hanging on to one or two pieces of information like that. And um, I don't think it's going to hurt anything to, uh, to put what we do have out in front of as many people as we can. There's a lot of misinformation in Jody's case. And so what we have done in, in more recent years, in the last 10 years or so at Find Jody, is if we can do nothing else except advocate for Jody and just make people aware of her case, we can at least be the one website where people go to and say, these are the known facts as best as we're able to present them. And there, there is no rumor. There is no speculation. Um, so we're not going to have some things that you might find elsewhere in terms of maybe this person did it, something like that. But we do have the facts that we've been able to verify through, you know, the, just being trained journalists and, um, and have it in one place where people can go. Findjody.com is the website that I went to when somebody I worked with at one point said, have you ever heard of the Jody, Jody Husentrude case? And I said, no. And they said, you have to go see this website. And I went to find Jody probably in 2009 or 10. And it's just always been there sort of as a lighthouse for Jody's case of uh, this is a place you can go to get the known information uh, on, on Jody's case and just be aware of it. And, um, and, and that's why it's there. That's, that's the reason that we keep, uh, keep going. Scott Fuller, thank you. Thank you for your dogged determination, your effort. Um, relentless effort on this case. And I truly hope for you and, and her family, most importantly, Jody's legacy, her memory, and everyone in Iowa and beyond that we find answers um, and eventually closure. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today. We will make sure that, that listeners have all this information so everyone can contact you with any tips possible. Thank you. Thank you. Again. We appreciate it. Thank you for the coverage, Emily. And thanks for the time. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.